Welcome back. This is part four of our uh, starting point series. For those of you who haven't been here, for those of you online who haven't watched yet, the series is based upon a simple premise. The premise is this, much like everything else in life, our faith has a starting point. Because there is a time in everyone's life where we don't know anything. We don't believe anything or we didn't know what to believe. And then somebody came along, it's usually our parents or our grandparents, and said, here, believe this. And we said, okay, got it. Good enough. Now I believe. And a lot of times it was a parent or both parents or a grandparent, but they would tell us, believe this, and then they take us to this place, this religious place, like a church or a synagogue. And then the church or the synagogue would deliver a bunch of content to us. And, and then we would have something we could say we believed in. And it made it easy for us not to think about all those things because it was basically spoon-fed to us. And whatever they told you to believe when you were a kid, you probably believed that God is great and God is good. And then you thanked him for our food. I've never understood that prayer. It just doesn't rhyme and it bothers me. But anyway, but that was kind of it. That was the extent of your faith. You kind of stopped there. But then you hit high school. And, and a lot of people start to drift away in high school, at least when it comes to their lifestyle, because you're told to behave in a certain way. And when you're young, it's easy to behave in that way. But when you're a little bit older and there's some peer pressure and your friends want to start doing things, you have a harder time listening to what you were told. Then college comes along for some, work for others, and this drift continues. And then we find ourselves as adults, and by the way, that thing is moving. The line is moving year after year after year. If you look at old pictures of like 18 and 19 year olds who served in the, in the Civil War and World War II, and they look so much older than 18 or 19 year olds do today. I think just adulthood has been moving later and later in life. But when you get there, you kind of move back toward responsible living. Okay, I played enough. Now it's time to sort of live like a grown-up, and then you go back to your childhood faith, and you realize, wow, that didn't do it for me. It's kind of inadequate. And so for many, there's this gap between what we learned as children and what we experience as adults. And we respond to that gap in one of two ways. Some of us just say, I'm just going to believe it anyway. I know it doesn't really satisfy me intellectually, the, what I was taught as a kid or what to believe, but I'm, I'm just going to believe it. And then other people look around and say, no, I'm not. The gap between what I was taught as a kid and what I see in the world is just too wide and I can't continue to believe anymore. And even though most people don't just decide I'm not believing that anymore or I'm going to walk away from my childhood faith, it happens. It actually happens. It just sort of melts away as life gets busier and busier. As, as um, Stephen Covey, the seven habits of highly effective people, the author wrote, the late Stephen Covey wrote, um, the tyranny of the urgent sets in. The tyranny of the urgent is when something's happening and it's urgent, you can't pay attention to anything else because that urgency is just screaming in your face. It's like a fire that needs to be put out. And so the tyranny of the urgent comes along in life and it replaces the long-term idea of pay attention to what's important. And so in this series, this is kind of what we're doing. We're asking the question, what would it look like if you were to start over with your faith? What would it look like to have an adult starting point for your faith? Now, if you missed any of the messages, you'd like to go check them out. Again, you can go to hammockstreetchurch.com, watch the sermons under the uh, 
resources tab, or you can go to YouTube, our YouTube channel, uh, or Hammock Street Church. You can check out any messages that you might have missed. Also, if you want, if you see a message or watch a message and you think a friend would be uh, benefited thereby, you can send it to them as well. Well, today, here's what we're doing. Today, we're going to look at something that I'm going to guess every one of us has wrestled with at some point along the way in a faith journey, because today we're going to be talking about rules, specifically the role of rules when it comes to our faith. Now, why are we doing this? Why are we looking at rules? Well, here's why. Most everybody already believes that all religion is is rules, right? I mean, don't most people believe that, oh, come on, I'm just not a rule follower, and religion just gives you a lot of rules. And there is some truth to that belief. In every religion, there are a bunch of rules. Islam has the five pillars of Islam. Judaism has the Ten Commandments that has led to the 613 halakhic laws, or the 613 mitzvot in Hebrew, which just means kind of things you're supposed to do. And of course, both Judaism and Christianity have adopted the Ten Commandments. And it follows that if you're in one of those religious communities or any other, there are rules and they can't be ignored. Now, as for the rules that are specific to the Christian community, we got plenty of them. And, and there's a distinction between Catholic rules and Protestant rules. And then there's a distinction between Protestant rules and other Protestant rules. The, the Baptists have a whole set of rules. So do the Presbyterians, I would argue, that no one does coming up with novel rules and ways to enforce them against your own people as well as the Presbyterians do. The Methodists have their own rules, and the Baptists and Presbyterians don't think the Methodist rules go far enough because Methodists seem to be too happy. And on and on and on it goes. Now, I'm not going to continue listing Christian denominations. People believe that in the United States alone, there are over 200 Christian denominations. And get this, there are 45,000 different flavors of Christianity worldwide. But I bring all this up to ask the question, what's up with the rules? Why are there so many rules? Why are rules such a huge part of religion? Because if we're being honest, it's likely that the rules paid, played a major role in your decision to at least push back against religion or possibly to walk away from the religion to which you were first introduced. Many have walked away from their faith because the rules of religion were just so burdensome that people didn't think they would work in the real world. So today... We're going to talk about the relationship between rules and religion in a message called the role of rules. And as we do this, we're going to try to determine whether there's a starting point in our understanding of how rules and our faith in God fit together. All right, so that's what we'll be doing today. Won't you pray with me and then we will dig in. Father God, thank you for gathering us together on this rainy morning. Thank you for bringing together your community, your ecclesia. Thank you for bringing together a group of people who are friends, who are brothers and sisters, who are here to get to know you better, to draw closer to you, and to draw closer to each other. God, as we continue on this morning, we ask that you would help us to keep our hearts and minds open so that we understand your word and we incorporate it into our lives 
We thank you, God, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're going to start off today with the premise that uh, Andy Stanley from North Point Church actually came up with, uh, with this a few years back. North Point Church is our ministry partner, and here's what he said. He said, rules always assume some kind of relationship, all right? You can't have rules that you expect anyone to follow unless there's a pre-existing relationship. Now, to help us understand this concept, here are some categories to help us order our thinking. Essentially, there are two models for rules in a relationship, the family model and the club model. Okay, let's start off with the family model. The family model works like this. You were born into a family. Then your parents started making rules for you as a child in the family. Now, they didn't make the rules to make you a part of the family. The rules were established once you were already a part of the family. And as you grew older, more rules were established. And eventually what would happen is this, you outgrew those rules. And when you outgrow the rules in a family, what it really means is you don't have to obey those family rules anymore. But of course, you're still a part of the family. So in sum, you had rules not to become a part of the family but because you are already a part of the family. Now, the interesting thing about the whole parent rule is this. Parents only set rules for their own children. You have never called your neighbor's kids and said, hey, Jimmy, did you finish your homework yet? Like, you've never done that, have you? If you have, that's weird, okay? Or, hey, listen... Brittany, what are you doing up? Turn off the TV. You have school tomorrow. Can you imagine calling your neighbor's kids and telling them that? Or, hey, go to bed. Why don't you do that? Because you don't tell someone else's kids what to do, right? Rules are for members of the family. Rules don't make you a part of the family. Rules exist because you are already a part of the family. And parents... And grandparents or whomever gets to set the rules, they set the rules for their own. All right. Now, the second model is the club model. All right. What's the club model? Well, in this model, you agree to obey certain rules in order to become part of a family or part of an organization, in order to begin a relationship. So when you join a club, when you join a gym, when you join a social club, they give you a contract and you read the contract. You should read your contracts, okay? Don't forget to read your contracts. So you read your contract. If you agree with what you've read, with what it says, you sign the contract. And once you sign, now you're agreeing to keep those rules. And if you agree to keep those rules, you're in. You're in the organization. You're in the club. And if you break those rules, you're what? You're out. That's right. You're out. So it's also like the employee model. It's very similar to the employee model. When you go to work for a company, they say, here's what we want you to do. And here's how we expect you to act. And here's your job description. Those are your rules. Those are the things you have to follow if you want to get into the company as an employee. And if you want to stay in the company as an employee. Now, the thing that makes the club model different from the family model is this. With the family model... You get the rules after the relationship is established. And with the club model, you get the rules in order to establish the relationship. 
All right, now I'm going to make it a little bit more confusing because I'm going to throw in a third category that is salient here in South Florida. There is the homeowners association model. Now, in a homeowners association, you rarely know where you stand with the homeowners association. You're free to buy a house. You're free to get in. And as long as you obey the neighborhood covenants that, again, nobody ever reads up front, you're fine. But if you didn't pay close enough attention to those covenants, you'll start getting nasty notes in your mailbox or on your door. Did you ever get this? Anybody ever gotten one of those? We got one a few months ago. If you don't get your grass to turn green, we're going to hire somebody to do it for you. They're going to charge three times what it typically costs, and you're going to have to pay. We got that letter. Our grass was green the next week. Now, with the homeowners association model, you're kind of in and you're kind of out. If you behave, you're in. If not, you're out. They can't make you move out of the neighborhood, but they can make you wish you live somebody, somewhere else. Now, I could tell you stories about this. Uh, from the from the lawyer standpoint, this is like one of the worst areas of law to practice. Sorry if anybody's watching and they practice homeowners association law. I I am so sorry for you. It is impo- It is really tough. But anyway, those are the models, and here's the point: wherever there are rules, and wherever you're accountable to a set of rules, you are in a relationship. These things go together, and when you take these concepts and press them down upon a religious institution, a religious system, things get confusing. Are you connected to God no matter what you do, but there are rules to follow like a family? Or did you get connected to God just because of your good behavior? But then you live with the possibility of messing up and getting kicked out whenever you mess up. Or are you connected to God because you're a human being and all human beings are in? But there's a chance that you're going to get a note in your mailbox one day that even though God can't kick you out, he'll certainly make your life miserable until you change and start following the rules. Now, interestingly, people will consider the categories that I just presented in different ways. Essentially, people will consider them theologically or emotionally. See, faith is a very emotional thing. Think about it. If you've ever received any kind of religious training, you know what you're supposed to believe. But you might have never felt that it was true, and so you hesitated. So which one is it, and how do we know? How does our behavior line up with God? What does God expect of us? And when are we in, and when are we out? And How the heck are we supposed to know? So to help us get a handle on this question, or at least to create a framework to help us through this challenge, we're going to go back in time. We're going to go back to an ancient set of laws, an ancient set of rules. One of, not the oldest, but one of the oldest, one of the earliest and most thoroughly documented collections of laws in human history. Now, you know what these laws are. You know them as what? The Ten Commandments. Okay. There's no better image of the Ten Commandments than Charlton Heston holding the Ten Commandments. I don't think it'll ever be topped. Now, you can find the Ten Commandments in the Hebrew Bible or, as we refer to it, the Old Testament. They were written about 1400 B.C. Jews and Christians believed that they were given, believed that they were given 
to Moses by God. Now, I say that. You've all heard of the Ten Commandments, right? Okay. Very few people, Jewish or Christian, can actually name all Ten Commandments. I'm not going to make you do that here. But I'm going to tell you that anecdotal studies say people get about two or three. Most people get two or three of the commandments. Also, most people know that they are in the Bible, but they don't know where in the Bible they are. They usually say, yeah, 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 they're in there somewhere. Okay? Now I'm going to teach you a trick. Okay. The Ten Commandments are in the book where you learn all about Moses. That is the book of Exodus. Good. Some of you got that. Some of you Bible scholars up front. Good job. Everybody say Exodus with me. Exodus. Very good. Okay, that's locked in. We've said it out loud. It's locked in. Okay. Now, how many commandments are we talking about? Ten. Very good. All right. Are they important? Yes, they're very important. So they're so important. Let's double them. Let's say 20. Ten times two is 20. Got that? The Ten Commandments are found in Exodus 20. Now you know, right? You were wondering, should I come to church on a rainy day? See, now it's been worth your while. Good. Okay. Before we take a look at the beginning of the Ten Commandments, let's tie some things together. So if you'll remember, last week we talked about Abraham. Now here's a little review to get us to that point, and then we'll do some subsequent history. So here's what happened. Remember, God promised Abraham he was going to make him a great nation. The problem, however, was Abraham didn't have any children, and Abraham was getting old. All right? He was getting older, and he panicked. So he and his wife Sarah agreed that Sarah's too old to have her own children. So you know what? Abraham should go ahead and have a child with Sarah's Egyptian servant. Her name was Hagar. Those of you around my age, remember Sammy Hagar, no relationship. Okay, so they had a child together. The child's name was Ishmael. And later on, Sarah did get pregnant. And they had a son whom they named Yitzchak, which is Hebrew for Isaac. So as it turned out, Abraham ended up with two sons, right? He ended up with Ishmael and Isaac. Now, here's something interesting. You can read this on your own if you like. In Islam, Ishmael is considered the son of blessing. And in Judaism and Christianity, Isaac is considered the son of blessing. All right. Now, these two Abrahamic religions, Islam and Judaism, and then the third later comes along, go in two or three different directions. But most of what we know about Ishmael as the son of blessing doesn't come into the world until the 600s A.D., all right, the 600s A.D., through the prophet Muhammad, who wove a narrative that connected the Arab nations back to Ishmael and back to Abraham. Okay, so that's kind of that side of Abraham's lineage. Now, Isaac had a son. Isaac's son's name was Yaakov, or Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons who would eventually, more or less, head the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, one of those sons was named Joseph. We've talked about him in church. Joseph's brothers did not like him because Isaac had given him a colorful coat, a coat of many colors, and he would go to Broadway and be portrayed by Donny Osmond and the whole thing. Okay, but he had a colorful coat, and so a colorful coat, and so the brothers threw him into a pit, and then eventually he was taken to Egypt, and he ended up, Joseph ended up becoming Egypt's prime minister. Then there was a famine in the area, famine in all the land. 
So Joe texted his whole family. They had a family group chat going on. And he said, hey, guys, there's plenty of food here in Egypt. Come live here. And so the whole family moves to Egypt. All of Abraham's descendants end up there. Now, while they're there, this family became a nation. And they began multiplying like rabbits. The Jewish population boomed in Egypt. And the Egyptians didn't take to the boom lightly. It didn't sit well with them. And the people of Egypt went to the Pharaoh and they said, hey, if we don't do something about these Hebrews, there's going to be more Hebrews than there are Egyptians. So the Egyptians enslaved the Hebrews. And for the next 400 years, this family became a nation, a slave nation. Generation after generation was born into this family and they knew only slavery. And when they would share amongst each other their story of faith, they would tell the story about Father Abraham because they were trying to keep them encouraged even though they were a slave nation. They'd tell this story. Children, long ago, there was a man named Abraham and God promised him that one day his family would be a nation. Uh, Yes, you in the back. So we're that nation? Uh, Yes, we're that nation. Uh, Yes, you in the back again. Uh, But we're slaves. Uh, Yeah, right, you got it. We're we're, we're slaves. It wasn't quite working out. They were a nation, but they were a slave nation. They didn't think they'd be a slave nation. But don't worry. Remember, God promised Abraham the whole world would be blessed through us. (sighs) Yes, you in the back again. But we're slaves. I know. Quit bringing that up. And once again, there's this conflict. Here's what we're supposed to believe, but here's our current reality. We're supposed to believe we're going to be a nation, we're going to bless the whole world, but our current reality is bless the whole world. We can't even bless ourselves. We're a slave nation. So for about 400 years, there are all sorts of stories about Abraham and about how he had a son and then about how he had a son and then how that son had a son. And then there was a story about Joseph. But after a while, the story was getting old and they weren't believing it anymore. And the people were starting to feel like none of this is ever going to come true. And we're just being told these stories to try to artificially keep our hopes alive. And then one day, a man named Moses shows up. And Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, let's do this together. He says, Pharaoh, let my people go. Very good. All right. And Pharaoh said, no. And Moses said, oh, yeah? Watch this. And then nature goes nuts, goes wild. Locust swarms, blood, boils, frogs. Egypt is under assault. And eventually Pharaoh relented. And Moses led the nation of Israel out of Egypt. This is history. This is, this is stuff you can find confirmed by sources outside of the Bible. You don't have to believe the Bible to know this is true. This is history. So Moses led the people out of Egypt. And a few weeks later, they end up at Mount Sinai. And Moses goes up onto Mount Sinai to receive God's law. All right, so catch this. All they'd known was slavery. They were slaves. And they thought like slaves. And for generation after generation, they had no freedom. And they didn't know their God. So there they were at the foot of Mount Sinai. And according to the story, Moses goes up. And God gives this nation their very first set of laws. And part of that very first set of laws was the Ten Commandments. 
And you can find those Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. All right. Spiritual bunch here. I thought so. So now let's read the introduction to the Ten Commandments because it's in these two verses that we get a major clue as to how religion, God, rules, and law all fit together. So here's what God said. This is Exodus chapter 20, verse 2. I am the Lord, your God. Now, for the people, this statement was actually somewhat surprising. I am the Lord, your God. Really? You're our God. Yes. I am the Lord, your God. Uh, Okay, so I guess that makes us your people. Yes. So how did it happen? We don't remember that happening. It certainly didn't happen because we did something to make it happen. We didn't apply to be your people. So you're telling us that we've been enslaved for 400 years. And all that time we've been oppressed and abused. You now come along and perform some crazy miracles. And all of a sudden you're our God and we're your people. That's how this works. We didn't do anything to earn this. How are we now your people? And God continued, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. God told the people, I am the Lord your God who has done something for you, even though you've done nothing for me. I'm the Lord your God who sent someone to deliver you at your darkest moment when you'd given up all hope. When you didn't expect to be delivered, I've done something miraculous and spectacular for you, and you haven't done anything for me. People were like, you're right. We haven't. Because we wouldn't know what to do. We don't even know what the rules are. We don't know if there are any rules. So by this, God had effectively told them, I know. Before I give you any rules, I want you to know that you are mine and I am yours, that we're connected. I want you to understand all of that before we start talking about any rules. You all still with me? Okay. So after that, there are the plagues. There are these nine plagues. You can read about them in the book of Exodus. Very good. Nine plagues. Now, Pharaoh's starting to get a little bearish on the future of Egypt. God, through Moses, told the Jews that he had one more thing that he wanted them to do. So we are nine plagues in, one more thing God wants the people to do. Now, it was not a law. It was not a commandment. It was just a thing that God wanted them to do. So Moses, on behalf of God, says to the nation of Israel, while they're still in Egypt, God wants you to trust him. Tonight, before you go to bed... God wants you to slaughter a lamb. By the way, they did this anyway. That's what they did. That's how they ate. And God wants you to have a meal. Again, they normally did this. And God wants you to take the blood of that lamb that you slaughtered and put it all around your doors. They didn't do this all the time. And when they asked, "Um, huh, why would we want to do that? Moses said, God said, trust me. And so that night, most of the Jewish people, I'm sure there were some that didn't, most of the Jewish people had a special meal. They slaughtered a lamb. They took the blood of that lamb and they 
painted over their doors. They painted on the sides. They painted on the top, the lintel. They painted on the other side. And then they packed everything they had because they were told the next day they'd be leaving. Imagine what they thought. These enslaved people who didn't even know they had a God, who didn't even know there were any rules, are like, we've been here for 400 years and we're leaving, what, tomorrow? Yeah. God said, trust me. We go to Exodus chapter 12, verse 13. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. And that's exactly what happened. Exodus 12, 31 and 32. During the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Up, leave my people, you and the Israelites. Go, worship the Lord as you have requested. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said and Go. And from that moment on, the Jewish people would celebrate the festival of Passover. Why did they celebrate the festival of Passover? It was to remember. To remember what? Not the Ten Commandments. That's not why you celebrate Passover. Not to remember the Ten Commandments. It was not to remember the law of God. They celebrated Passover to remember this night. To remember the night when God whispered to the nation, I just want you to trust me. And in trusting me, you'll find deliverance from slavery in Egypt. All right? That's why they were told to celebrate. That's why they celebrate. Three weeks later, they gathered at the foot of Mount Sinai. And there God said, all right, now I'm going to give you some law. But let's make sure before I give you the law, we don't forget the most important thing I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I am your God. I am the Lord. You are my people. I'm the one who delivered you from slavery. Now, there are some things I want you to do as we learn to live together and as I help you live together. And then he gave them their first commandment. Okay, now on to the rules. As for the first one, Wait a minute. It's not a thou shalt not. It's a thou shall. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, upon hearing that one, I'm guessing that the whole of Israel kind of went, oh, wow, that's it. That's the law. Easy. After all you've done for us, you've delivered us from slavery. You've given us and our descendants a future and a nation and a leader and a God of our own. Done and done. We got that one. Why would we ever have another God before you? Now, the reason we're looking at it this way is so we can see. The Ten Commandments were not a precondition of the people's relationship with God. They were a confirmation of their relationship with God. They didn't get in because they obeyed rules. They got rules because they were in. The Ten Commandments, the first law of God's people, handed down 1,400 years before Jesus, representing the first time in Judeo-Christian history that God gave any rules at all to his people, these rules were not conditional. From the very beginning, God made it clear to the nation of Israel, even though you've done absolutely nothing, absolutely no thing to deserve it, you are my people. And now that we've established our relationship, I want to teach you how to live together and how to live under my authority. So let's begin with the basics. 
just don't have any other gods before me. What else do I need to do to demonstrate that you can trust me? All right. I need to ask you all a question. Don't raise your hand. Don't call out your answer. Think of it in your own mind so you don't feel like I'm trying to call you out or anything. Have you ever read the Old Testament? I mean, briefly, I'm going to give you a brief synopsis of the Old Testament. Here's how it goes. Genesis, first book, makes for very compelling reading. It's a page turner. Then Exodus comes out. Another really cool read. We can find the chapter of the Ten Commandments in what? Exodus what? 20. Very good. Then you get to Leviticus, which typically causes people to slow down and think, what the, what the heck was that? And then Numbers comes along. Numbers is a killer. And we call them the begatitudes. So-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so. Yeah, I mean, really kill you. Then there's Deuteronomy. When you read Deuteronomy, you feel like, I feel like I watched this show already. Did we already watch this last season? Like, I, feel like I, I feel like I read this because Deuteronomy just repeats the laws that, that we've already been presented. And then eventually you, to the prophets. You know, the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. And when you read the prophets, you experience these very seemingly angry guys who, who keep on talking about all the things that God is going to do to the people, but also things that God's going to do for the people. Which means that the words of the prophets evidence the fact that God wasn't going to give up on his people, even when they disobeyed the laws. The prophets give us evidence of God being a good parent. The prophets are all about God saying, okay, one, two, two and a half. All right, three, you're in timeout, mister. See, that's what the prophets do. And the prophets, God keeps putting the people in timeout. He keeps putting the nation of Israel in timeout. Think about it. The Babylon exile, when the Jews were taken out of the land and taken off the Babylon, that was about a 70-year timeout. And when the generation that was in exile died, God returned the people to their land. He didn't give up on them, even though they were disobedient. He didn't give up on them because of what they'd done, because of what they'd done. The things they did weren't the issue. They were God's people, period. He was never going to give up on them. He'd chosen them before he'd ever given them even the first, thou shalt or thou shalt not. The history of Israel is the history of God saying, mine isn't the club model. Mine is the parent model. Mine is the family model. So given that, we can safely say this. With God, relationship precedes rules. God opts for the family model over the club model. That's how God treated the nation of Israel. And the question then becomes, is that how God treats you? And is that how God treats me? And what we're going to see, and if you take the Christian faith seriously, what you'll see, if you want to start over, you'll eventually come to understand that when it comes to the role of rules, the rules are a confirmation, not a condition of a relationship with God. God is like a parent. He only gives rules to people who are his children, who are already in a relationship with him. See, if that's true, it is nothing short of amazing. If God's relationship with the nation of Israel is a model that stands for the truth, 
that you can rebel, you can be disobedient, you can forget to do things, you can do your own thing, and God keeps coming back over and over and disciplining you. He's not doing it to pay you back. He's doing it to bring you back like a good parent would. If that's true, that's simply more than we could ever dream of asking for. That speaks to the overwhelming wealth of God's love and mercy and kindness. Now, if Abraham and the nation of Israel were just aberrations, God's relationship with Israel wouldn't have meant a thing. But if Abraham and Israel were favored by God, if all of God's image bearers are favored by God, what does this mean? Does it mean we're on our own? What if Abraham, for him, it was all about faith? But for us, God doesn't say. What if, what, what if that happened? For Abraham, it was all about faith. But for us, you're on your own. What if for us, God says, okay, Abraham was all about faith, but you guys just do your best and then wait until you die and you'll know whether you've made it or not. We'll see if it was good enough. I mean, wouldn't that be awful? That would be awful. But that's not the situation we find ourselves in. Because we saw something important last week when we saw how God began his relationship with Abraham. And then we saw this week how God began his relationship with Israel. And from our reading and study of those two beginnings, it becomes clear that the examples that God gave us in connection with these two relationships apply to all of us, apply to all of mankind. And here's an amazing thing. As you consider all of this, and as you consider a starting point for your faith, when God made the promise to Abraham that we looked at last week, when God promised Abraham that, remember what he said, all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. God said, all the people, all the nations, not just the nation of Israel, not just the nation that someday might become a nation, but all the nations on earth will be blessed through you. Then a few hundred years later, the prophet Isaiah would say this to the nation of Israel, I will also make you, Israel, a light for the Gentiles. Remember, Gentiles just means all the other nations other than Israel. That my salvation might reach to the ends of the earth. In other words, God said, it's not just about you, Israel. You're going to be a signpost. You're going to be a bright light in the darkness. You're going to be a light so that my salvation can reach the end of the earth. God says, Israel, as much as I love you, it's bigger than you. Abraham, as much as I love you, and, and as much as I've chosen you, and as much as as I've given you, and as patient, Abraham, as I've been with you, it's even bigger than you. This is about the whole world. And so about 1,500 years after giving the law to the nation of Israel, Jesus arrived on the planet. And before requiring anything, Jesus turned nature upside down. He healed. He stopped storms. He spoke to the wind. He turned water into wine. He did things that no one could imagine any human being ever doing. Even those who were closest to Jesus were terrified at his power. But he said to them, trust me. Because the promise that God fulfilled to Abraham and the promise that God fulfilled through Israel is a promise for all men and all women. And as it began, through Abraham, through faith... And as it continued through Israel, through faith, it shouldn't be a surprise that such a message for the world would be extended through faith in the Lord 
Jesus Christ. When John, the one whom Jesus loved the most, was looking back on his time with Jesus, John said this, to those who believed in him, he gave the right to become club members. To those who believed in him, he, began, he, he gave the right to become members of the Homeowners Association. No. Okay, here's what he said. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become, what? Children of God. As God began a nation through Abraham, as God adopted the nation of Israel as his own, so that invitation to become a child of the living God has been extended to all of humanity, to all of us, which means it's the family model, which means God is saying, anything I require of you is evidence of my love for you. Anything I ask you to do is evidence of the fact that we already have a relationship. We have a pre-established relationship. God says, you can trust me because all along I've been all about you. And that's where we're going to pick this up next week. And until we gather again, I want you to ponder this question. This is something I want you to think about this week. Talk to each other if you can. Talk to me if you want online. Here's the question. Growing up, did you feel like religion was based on the family model, the club model, or the homeowners association model? Did you feel that God had adopted a family model Because you're in, I've given you something to do, but I love you and you'll never be thrown out. You're part of my family. Or did it feel more like, hey, if you keep your end of the deal, I'll keep my end of the deal. Or did it feel like, you just never know. Maybe God was going to throw you out. Maybe God was going to keep you in, but you got a sense he just didn't like you all that much. I want you to think about that. We'll talk about it during the week if you can, because next week... We're going to come back. We're going to pick it up right there. All right? Why don't we pray? Father, please open our eyes to whatever it is that you want us to see. That regardless of how we felt growing up, God, regardless of what we believed, help us to get this right. God, we want to worship you as you are, not just as we imagine you to be. God, we thank you. Father, for those who are listening or watching who years ago gave up on ever knowing, who just decided we can't know, there's no point knowing, I'm just washing my hands of the whole thing. God, would you in your grace and mercy just give a little bit of light to them, allow that light to shine through just a little and spark a sense of hope in all of us who are doubting, spark a sense of hope that you can be known. And God, would you give us the courage to take whatever step we think necessary. God, we love you, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.